I'll just say from a starting point that this is the kind of story that makes me excited about Lost Debate because when I look at the headlines, on one side you have headlines like Canada's Freedom Convoy is a front for right-wing anti-worker agenda. On the other side, you have critics mock puppet Trudeau for fleeing capital during truckers' protest. Tyrant on the run, that is media polarization if I've ever seen it. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Corey, what do we have today? Well, on today's show, we are seeing new fault lines in the Republican Party. We talk about the diverging paths between Mike Pence and the RNC. Then we check on the freedom convoy that's overtaking the Canadian capital. We'll take a look at how GoFundMe is driving fresh controversy around those protests. Blue states are dropping mask mandates and China is pouring more money into the metaverse. But first things first, after nearly two weeks, Joe Rogan is still in the headlines and I'm personally sick of talking about this guy. The podcaster first received scrutiny from musicians on Spotify for spreading COVID-19 misinformation on his show. But the attention has now shifted to Rogan's prior use of racial slurs. In a compilation video posted on social media, Rogan is seen repeatedly using the N-word in various podcasts over the years. A separate video shows him telling a racist joke comparing black people uh, with the planet of the apes. That's messed up. Now, Rogan has issued an apology for both of these videos and Spotify's CEO is standing by him. But the pressure to deplatform and cancel Rogan continues. So, where do we come down on these new allegations on everybody's favorite podcaster? Yeah, I, I, I'm with you in that. I hope this is the last time we're covering this for a while. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> but I think where we are right now is, you know, he's gotten renewed scrutiny over everything he's ever said. I mean, his shows can be really long. Some of these shows could be four mm. hours, and people are picking through those and you know, found some some really rough stuff in his past. I think there's a lot of attention to like his use of the N-word and whether it was in or out of context. I think we don't really have the full clips for that because they were taken down. But there is this clip that you referenced, which is the Planet of the Apes clip. And the guy goes, okay, I goes, that in a good neighborhood? He's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Guy barely speaks English. He takes us there. We get out and we're giggling. Oh, we're going to go see Planet of the Apes. We walk into Planet of the Apes. <laughs> We walked into Africa, dude. We, we, we walked in the door, and there was no white people. There was no white people. We, Planet of the Apes didn't take place in Africa. That was a racist thing for me to say. And as he describes, this was a terrible clip. Um, let's look a little bit at his apology here for this. There's a clip from 11 years ago. I was telling a story on the podcast about how me and my friend Tommy and his girlfriend, we got really high. We were in Philadelphia and we went to go see Planet of the Apes. And we didn't know where we were going. We just got dropped off by a cab and we got dropped off in this all black neighborhood. And I was trying to make the story entertaining. And I said, we got out and it was like we were in Africa. It's like we were in Planet of the Apes. I did not, nor would I ever say that black people are apes, but it sure fucking sounded like that. And I immediately afterwards said, that's a racist thing to say. Corey, what do you make of that? I mean, I mean, it's real easy to kind of, you know, have that hindsight. Hindsight is twenty twenty with that, you know. So basically, you know, when you're looking back on something, it's real easy to put it in context. But out of all of this, I think the key point is we got really high. Like, this is the right wing. This is their new poster boy. Like, someone who just gets high and says racist things. And to be honest, 
you know, at first we were all mad because he was spreading misinformation about COVID-19. Like that's what the original beef with him was. And then it shifted to this new, you know, these allegations of being racist. And these are not new allegations. These videos first circulated back in 2019 when he got the um, Spotify deal. I think uh, before he got the Spotify deal. So this is not new information. So 50% of me is like, well, we're just shifting the goalposts now. We're just, we're just, we're getting mad at him for something else because we couldn't cancel him for the vaccine misinformation or for the perceived vaccine information. So 50% of me is like, well, that's not really what we were talking about at first. But then the other 50% of me is quite alarmed by how many people on the right has have doubled down their support of Rogan after all of this. It's almost like there were people who wasn't even talking about him that much that have now jumped in because it's become full-blown cancel culture, culture war nonsense. And so that I find a little bit alarming, but at the same time, it just, it just, it's one of one of those things that you do when you're trying to cancel somebody you go through 20 years of their past and try to bring up everything you can and i don't know if that's 100 percent fair given where we started this conversation right and I, when you say we like obviously we didn't call for his cancellation over the covid no. misinformation mm -hmm. and i think right now nobody has the power to cancel joan joe rogan like even if spotify were to kill this deal with him you know as we talked about in the last podcast or one of the last podcasts the Rogan probably could make more money outside of Spotify, yeah. mm -hmm. especially if you take into account that if they cancel this contract, you probably have a serious penalty. So he'd probably take some money from Spotify, go start his own thing. And there are offers out there, right? There are people already offering him the same amount of money to do his podcast elsewhere. So the question is, what do you do about this? So for him, he's apologized. And it's not for me because he didn't, he didn't speak about people like me. So it's not for me to be the leading edge of people who accept or don't accept his apology. And I'm not like a longtime listener. I listen for the show and I listen every now and then when there's some kind of medical thing on there, like, you know, Lifespan or Peter Atia or somebody like that. But I thought Derek Thompson in the in the Atlantic had an interesting take on this. He said, at some point, people spending their time spelunking for his worst recorded moment need to ask themselves, what do you want? What is the outcome we're rooting for? And then later on, he says, this is the bottom line arithmetic of fame. Joe Rogan has 11 million listeners, and I do not. We don't. And you do not, correct? We don't. We can't change his audience. I just hope we can change his mind. That's where I am, which is this is a super influential person, 11 million. And, you know, as you described, like the right seems to be particularly enamored of him. But there are also members of the left uh, who are gravitating towards that podcast. And my sense is, given that he's not going away, I understand people are like, we need to, like, like, take our music off this platform or stop engaging with him, et cetera, is I think that he's got way too powerful a platform for anybody, you know, who's trying to persuade huge swaths of America to the, just ignore at this point. And I think that strategy to, to try to persuade him and his audience is, it makes a little bit of sense to me. Yeah. And I think it's worth noting that Daniel Eck, the Spotify CEO, kind of comes down in a very agnostic way on this. Um, in his statement, he said, I strongly condemn what Joe has said, and I agree with his decision to remove past episodes from our platform, which all the episodes in question, um, Rogan decided to remove. And he said, I want to make one point very clear. I do not believe that silencing Joe is the answer. And it's worth pointing out that Rumble offered him $100 million to leave Spotify. Like, There's not really a route to totally canceling Joe Rogan. And I think that, you know, I mean, I always come down on the side of redemption. It's regardless of who it is or if I agree with them. But obviously, these clips look really bad. And I appreciate that despite a lot of people on the right who say never apologize to the mob. I believe in not apologizing to the mob when you haven't done something wrong. But this is an example of a really bad look. This These clips are really, really unfortunate. They reflect very poorly on him. And so I think that this apology hopefully can mark a turn. And even his last apology and committing to some more responsible 
kind of metrics of bringing different voices in and stuff. I, I hope that this is kind of a reckoning and whether or not I agree with all of the kind of cancellation attempts on him, I think that it is important that he kind of takes this new this new responsibility very seriously. Absolutely. I mean, I don't really have a problem with Joe Rogan. I, I have a problem with the people who are trying so hard to defend him when he himself is apologizing. Like you just said, Ricky, there are people on the right saying, no, you shouldn't apologize for this. Well, I mean, it was wrong for him to say these things. You got people on the right trying to ignore these comments. You got people on the right trying to justify them, saying things like, well, we don't know the context. He's a white dude saying the N-word. I don't really have to know the context to know that that's not right, that that's problematic. And then, you know, uh, there was there was a, a clips coming out over the weekend of people, I think it was uh, one of the hosts of Breaking Points posted a, uh, a video of Joe Biden saying, saying the N-word uh, when he was quoting someone uh, Im Im implying, well, why can Joe Biden do this and, and Rogan can't? No, Joe Biden shouldn't do it either. Like, right. like if you go to court... Yeah, you don't want to impeach and, him over it, but and, you just say it's wrong, right? Well, yeah, I mean, it's like this idea of if you did something wrong, you can't just say, well, somebody else is doing something right. wrong and that's the reason why you shouldn't get mad at me for doing something wrong. And we seem to do that all the time. It's the what about is in Olympics. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. But, so uh, speaking of breaking points, they had a segment the other day about this and this was the description of the segment. It says, Crystal analyzes the Rogan smear campaign from the perspective of how it represents a deeper rot of American politics and what the end result of something like this could be. So basically our reaction to this is a, is a symptom of the rot within American society. Society. I'm with her on that. Our country's really fucked. And these moments, I think, only underline that. But then she goes on to say that people are more concerned about Rogan's words, which have been taken out of context than the real problems facing society. Now, I think some of his words may have been taken out of context, but as he describes, the, the Planet of the Apes thing was just wrong and he apologized for it. And I think people shouldn't be going above and beyond to tell people who are apologizing that their apology is wrong. Like, so I don't think Rogan is like afraid. I think he's just like, hey, I said something shitty and I'm apologizing. And it is interesting to me that there are defenders of Rogan who want to go further than him and defend him. He could defend himself. But I think this gets even more interesting when she said, and Breaking Points for people, I think a lot of our listeners, especially um, the YouTubers, know Breaking Points. Is a, it's a big alternative media company, which launched about a year ago. Huge audience. And they put, a, put together a lot of interesting content. And she said they have bigger things to care about. And she went on this like segment about like there's all this problems, economic quality and stuff. We should be focusing on that kind of stuff, not on what Joe Rogan said. Well, guys, there are, in one sense, about a billion things going on in the world. More important <laughs> than the current efforts to shame, smear, and censor one single podcaster. You've got hunger, poverty, war, despair, climate collapse. Just take your pick. But here, here's my problem. Breaking points and a lot of this alternative media have no problem doing segment after segment after segment about CNN. MSNBC and the problems then. They literally did a segment a week before about Maddow. It was 10 minutes of straight gossip. That she was effectively given permission and planning to step back from her daily show. Mm -hmm. Now, the expectation was that that wouldn't really happen till kind of the end of the year. Uh, apparently, insiders were thinking she might take some time off in the spring. About why Maddow was, you know, why is she stepping back? She's doing a podcast. She's doing a film. Here's the, you know, Kremlinology of MSNBC. And here's who's up. Here's who's down. It was mocking MSNBC. Then they extended Nicole Wallace. <laughs> now they have nobody in the primetime. What are they going to do? Who is going to take over? They have nobody now who can compete with Tucker. I mean, Rachel basically was the liberal Tucker. And now... It's dead. I mean, dead in the water. Chris Hayes and I, who is it? O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O O
when we in, in Maddow last time I checked has 2.2 million viewers. Uh, Rogan, according to Nielsen, has 11 million. So Rogan is a more powerful media platform. Uh, why is it okay to critique and mock MSNBC, but not Rogan, who has 11 million people? I don't hate Rogan, but I think he's a powerful guy, as is Breaking Points now and a lot of this alternative media. And they don't get to to play by a different set of rules than everybody else. Like there's this sense that we're the smart, serious people. We get to critique media, but if you're critiquing media, it's because of some witch hunt and some bias. So I have a real problem with this. And I think that in general, I think that legacy media is an improvement upon what came before it in many ways. Like I think like coverage of things like the Wuhan virus. You mean like, alternative media. Uh, sorry, uh, alternative media. Like the coverage of Wuhan, for example. Like there's a leg. The alternative media is going to push boundaries in a lot of those stories in ways that the traditional media has not. The problem is sometimes they throw 10 darts at a board and if one of them hits, they're like, yeah, I'm super smart. Um, whereas we're like, all right, let's go back. Like when you did that segment about January 6th and it being an inside job, like is there follow-up to that? Like, you know, and you go one after another and so you'll notice these patterns. The bigger pattern that I'm worried about though is that these alternative media figures are friends with each other. They go on each other's podcasts. So the people from Breaking Points, when they launched, they went on Rogan. They got a lot of their audience from that. I'm jealous in many ways. I could already see the commenters. Like, I would love that audience. Now, when they go on Rogan, to me, that means that they have a relationship with him. Just like Maddow, no Statler, and you know David Axelrod, and all those people scratch each other's backs, and that's wrong, and we should point that out. When people in alternative media know each other and have each other's backs, we need to call that out too. They don't get to play by a special set of rules. And when they become bigger than the rest of media, it becomes even more incumbent on us to critique each other. It doesn't mean that I think they're bad people. I love a lot of these shows. I listen to Rogan like every now and then. I listen to Breaking Points a decent amount. I think like they did a, sh a segment on quantitative easing last week or the week before that I thought that was really smart. But it doesn't mean they're perfect. And so for me, I think if we replicate in legacy media, the smugness, the double standards, the overconfidence of traditional media, it will be a huge mistake. I would just point out one little wrinkle in that situation, though. I'd, I don't think anyone's immune from criticism, and I would critique any podcast no matter what my, my relationship is. But I think that there is a difference between calling out CNN or MSNBC for hypocrisy and what's happening to Rogan right now with trying to deplatform him. Right. Like nobody, and maybe there's like some fringe people who are saying we should take MSNBC off the air. But I think that that going that next step is what is particularly concerning to me um, with the Rogan thing. But I'd also say, I do kind of agree with her in the sense that this is a symptom of a kind of societal rot because I don't know anyone in the beginning of the pandemic who said, you know who I'm going to turn to to tell me what to do about vaccines? Joe Rogan. Right. Like this is, <laughs> this is a symptom of a failure of public health messaging, a failure of our politicians and our health officials to keep people together and in this together. And I think that you know, rather than just point the finger at Rogan, we need to all like all of our institutions need to point the finger at themselves and start thinking like, how how did we get to this point? This is super weird. And I feel like Rogan is just sort of like a figurehead of this whole thing, but really not what's behind his popularity in a sense. He's almost yeah. like an accidental uh, center of this entire debate. But I think like I would agree with you if the only focus of these segments like Breaking Points was about the people trying to deplatform them. But what they were saying is like the focus at all on what Rogan's saying is like, you know, she said that people were concerned about his comments, uh, which have been taken out of concert. They're not focused on the real 
problems in society. You are relitigating the context within which Joe Rogan said the N-word in 2013, <laughs> while the Fed decides whether or not to fo fork over a few more trillions to Wall Street, and private equity giants decide whether young people will ever be able to buy a home or start a family. And she's not saying that specific to trying to deplatform. It's just the focus. It's the attempt to criticize him, et cetera. And for me, uh, and you'll notice it within breaking points, right? Like they criticize people who they don't have strong relationships with and they they take it really easy on the people that they have strong relationships with. That's what the legacy media does. Like they scratch each other's backs, they hang out with the same parties and they look out for each other. And for me, like, why is it okay? Like, why is it distracting to focus on things that Rogan says? We're not trying to deplatform. We're just saying, hey, that, that was shitty. And if, if he's, for instance, spreading misinformation, which is not necessarily what this segment is about, pointing that out is not saying we should deplatform him. We did that the other day. But then saying like, all right, like here's like literally every Breaking Points episode is some clip from CNN or embassy saying, oh, here's what, you know, Brian Stetler says, here's what Maddow says, and let's, you know, even Colbert, and let's mock that, or in some cases, like very validly critique it. That's not distracting, right? But why is it distracting if we do that for Rogan? That's my question. Do they do that with like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity? See that? I don't know. I'm not as knowledgeable about that. I do know that they might have a relationship with, with Tucker because I think he did a blurb on their well, book. Well, it just sounds like they're a part of the societal rot then because they're on one particular side and they're only fixating on critiquing the other side. And by the way, like Joe Rogan is a weird person to put in this position for the right because isn't he a Bernie Sanders supporter? Like mm -hmm. he's not a right winger. Well, that's he's what I'm saying. Is like That's why I hold out. Like, like to me, it's like an evolution, right? And like once again, like, I don't necessarily, I'm not in Rogan's heart, so I don't know if he's a good or a bad person. I just say, like, here's a guy with a really important platform, and I hope he, like, per Derek Thompson's point, I hope he evolves in the ways I would want him to evolve, but I don't get to make that choice, right? Um, but I think, like, people could critique us and say, well, okay, well, what's your bias? So, you know, that's why we have a system. Like, every 365 days here at Lost Debate, we, we're going to put out a report that says, here's everybody who's given us money, and small donors can opt out because they, like, I value their privacy. So if you give us 25 bucks, which you can do on our website, uh, then you're not gonna, then then you don't have to put your name in that report, but you give us like a thousand plus dollars, you go in this report, and not only will we report who gave us money, which I think goes above and beyond what a lot of these platforms do when they do Patreon, but we're also gonna include in-kind contributions. So if you put me on your show, I'm gonna then put that in the report, and for everybody who's given us money or given us in-kind contributions by helping us get to their audience, I report any reporting that we have done about those people. And we're gonna do this every year and say, all right, you put me on your show, right? You put me on Midas Touch or something. Um, have we talked about Midas Touch? Did we not talk about Midas Touch? Was there a pitch that we let go by? And we'll try to be as thorough as we possibly can, and that's the best we could do. Um, and then people will be like, all right, well, you guys are like, you know, the Davids to the Goliaths, so the breaking points, so who are you to point them out? You're jealous of their audience. You're like, sure. You know, Bill Maher is the the David to CNN's Goliath. They have way more viewers than him. Fox News certainly does. Does that mean he can't critique them? No, I mean, it's even more important for the Davids to critique the Goliaths in these situations. I like the transparency there. Uh, I love the transparency. Well, moving on to our next story, former Vice President Mike Pence is breaking with his old boss to an extent we haven't seen before. Here's what he had to say at an event for the Federal Society on Friday. I heard this week that President Trump said I had the right to overturn the election. President Trump is wrong. I had no right to overturn the election. The presidency belongs to the American people and the American people alone. And frankly, there is no idea more un-American 
than the notion that any one person could choose the American president. On the very same day Pence made these remarks, the Republican National Committee formally censured two Republican members of the House, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, for serving on the January 6th committee. The RNC accused them of persecuting ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse, really an awfully sanitized way of describing the attack on the Capitol. So on the one hand, you have Pence pushing back on Trump's 2020 narrative. And on the other, you have the RNC fully endorsing the big lie. What does that tell us about the current state of the GOP? Well, I, I think I'm having a hard time keeping track of this narrative. You know, there's, you know, first it was wrong and people were condemning January 6th within the right. And then it became an Antifa uh, plot and then it became a deep state plot, but now it's legitimate protest again. And uh, it's, I'm just, it's maddening the, the revisionism that goes on here. I was glad Pence said what he did. Uh, but I think like if you go beyond this and say, you know, you take what Pence said, uh, but then you stack it up against what the RNC did in censuring Kinzinger and Cheney last week and saying that it was legitimate protest, you take, uh, you, you look across the country to censure uh, efforts. I mean, there's just one after another. South Carolina GOP yeah. censoring Representative Rice. Wyoming GOP censoring uh, Representative Cheney. Um, Clark County, Washington uh, GOP censoring Representative Herrera Boitler. Michigan GOP. You can go on. Ohio GOP with Representative Gonzalez. And I think like there's like an, you know, when we're talking about this sort of Olympic level, what about ism, they'll be like, well, what about Arizona Democrats censoring cinema? cinema yeah. One censure and it was wrong i called that out uh it, but it also wasn't censuring her uh over something like january 6th it was a stupid censure over her ideological votes and and not supporting uh overturning the filibuster for voting rights still a stupid censure in my opinion but when you stack that up against what's happening here um to me this is an alarming trend within conservatives yeah and just anecdotally i know a ton of people who were Trump people and no longer are. And I think that there is a large and growing faction within the right who who feel that way. And obviously there are still a ton that don't, but I don't think that the way that the Republican Party is moving is really reflective of its entire base, nor do I think that the way that de the Democratic Party is moving is reflective of its entire base with with the filibuster reform and like someone like Manchin who represents a more moderate group of people and that definitely with the censoring, it's it's disproportionate with the GOP. And that's its specific issue. But I think that we're seeing that we don't really have a two-party system in this country. I It's something that I feel very strongly about. After January 6th, it was the first time that Gallup ever recorded 50% of people uh, identifying as an independent. I think that ultimately our country is going to be pulled apart if we have these weird purity tests on either side, which certainly Trump is the figurehead of that on the right. And on the left, it's more ideologically based. Um, and I just think I think this is a moment to really say, like, there's no way that these two parties can represent the most diverse country in the history of humanity. Like, this is just absolute garbage. And there's no constitutional um, basis for them to even exist. Like George Washington's farewell address was like, don't let two parties pull us apart. And now here we are. Yeah. So I think, you know, good old George knew what he was talking about. This is <laughs> But do you think there's a difference between ideological purity tests and which I agree uh, yeah, no, exists, completely. which is part of the reason why we started last debate. And I think part of the problem that the, the right has, and this is a, an ongoing fight I have with my father, who's a big Trump fan, is that because it's a cult of personality, mm -hmm. then things like January 6th could happen, which I think like that, I, I'd be hard pressed to imagine something like that happening within the left because the ideology of the left includes a basic respect for democracy, but also there's no one figurehead that 
that you know Democrats could b- barely hold it together to vote for the same person in an election. When you have a cult of personality, it allows you to to go over the waterfalls in situations like this and say, no matter what this person says, like I've asked my dad before, point blank, while I was recording him, uh, Trump said, you know, he would shoot, if he shot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue, would you support him? And I asked my dad, would you support him if it were, uh, if he did that? And my dad said, yes. And then I said, what if that person was me? And he wouldn't answer that question. He wouldn't wow. even say, I wouldn't support Trump if he shot my own son. Uh, and wow. so, and, and you know, my dad could get mad at me at this. I have the audio. So, uh, so that's my own father. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. Like absolutely crazy. I think it's definitely different. The, like whether there's a figurehead and it's, it, it's not a one-to-one comparison, but I think that there's, there's definitely like within the democratic party, you have like the really progressive AOC kind of group. And then the older Democrats that aren't feeling that way. Like, I, I think it's just, it's just reductive inherently to say that the American people are going to fit into these two parties and that these institutions are somehow going to be truly representative of them. I think that we have way more than two parties in this country. And I think that examples like this, especially on the right, demonstrate that there are a lot of people who are on the right who say, no, I don't stand with this. And luckily, Pence is actually has the guts to speak for them on this issue. Yeah, I 100% agree with you, Ricky, that the two-party system is broken and we need to abolish political parties altogether, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, what did they call them at the founding? The associations, like they were called? Associations, the yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, There's a really great quote from Washington, which I won't try to quote off the top of my head, but look it up, the farewell address. It yeah. was like, it was like, wow, he literally predicted exactly what would happen. He called it. He definitely called it. Um, Speaking of associations. <laughs> <laughs> Thousands of truckers and protesters have descended on Ottawa, Canada's capital, to protest vaccine mandates and work restrictions. The mostly peaceful protest quickly became a media hailstorm. Commentators on the right consider this the most successful lockdown protest in North America. The left has pointed to Confederate flags and Nazi symbolism to denounce the protest as far-right extremism. Now, we've taken a lot of time to dig through local reporting, scrape social media, and look up the organizers involved. So, guys, what do we think? This I think this is the first time on the show we've talked a little bit about this protest that's going on with the truckers in Canada. What, what do we think of this entire Yeah, have situation? we talked about our neighbors to the north at all? I don't know. But, I mean, it's Canada. Mm, so. uh, <laughs> you know, we were, I think, you know, we've been we've been seeing, and thank you listeners and viewers, we we skyrocketed in, in U.S. Uh, rankings for political podcasts. We're now in the top 50. But in Canada, I think we're in the top 100 right now. So we've got some oh, wow. Canadian listeners out there. Uh, oh, so I want to shout out our neighbors to the north. I'm going to try to do right by them by not overstating our knowledge on this situation. <laughs> uh, I'll just say from a starting point that this is the kind of story that makes me excited about Lost Debate because when I look at the headlines, you know, you have on, on, on one side, you have uh, headlines like Canada's freedom convoy is a front for right-wing anti-worker agenda. Canada's truck convoy is just a stunt in a country where populism is still taboo. And then on the other side, you have critics mock puppet Trudeau for fleeing capital during truckers' protests, tyrant on the run. Uh, <laughs> and then you have go fund yourself, the trucker convoy. And great, by the way, like it's like your New York Post headlines. Uh, <laughs> go fund yourself. Uh, the trucker convoy in Canada is the most dramatic and most effective protest against COVID era overreach and vaccine mandates in North America. That is media polarization of I've ever seen it. I'm not saying that these are equally valid points of view or invalid. I'm just saying from a starting point engaging with this story, it is stark how much different different sides of the media are portraying the story. Definitely. And it reminds me during the summer of 2020, the coverage of BLM riots, where on one side it was praising them and on the other side it was highlighting the very worst aspects of them. And when you have large groups of people congregating, there will always be 
the bad apples. And I think that both sides use that excuse to not listen to the actual core complaints. And I, I think we've seen it now on the right and the left. Um, with this specifically, it's worth noting that this is being called an anti-vax rally. 85% of the truckers are vaccinated. The organizers said in a press conference that they held that they personally are vaccinated. Um, but they're specifically, this is these are their own words. The trucker convoy is not anti-vaccination. This is an anti-government mandate. Many of us are vaccinated. We simply believe every Canadian should be free to choose. Um, and they also say that they won't block any emergency vehicles and that they'll help anyone in need. So they've they've laid out the ground rules. And I personally, I mean, of course, it goes without saying that the grotesque symbols that have been spotted, I condemn entirely. But that express an explicit goal, I think, is worth talking about. And yet Trudeau and the Canadian leadership have not really addressed that and have really just honed in on the worst aspects of this protest. And, you know, ultimately, the the regulations here are pretty asinine because they're just now implementing a, a vaccination mandate only when truckers are crossing the border. Um, and this it's a 14 day quarantine if you're not vaccinated, regardless of whether or not you test positive or negative. So these truckers, if they're not going to get the vaccine, they're not going to be hired. They If they have an 85% workforce, it's a very small amount of people, but like they're not, nobody's going to hire those guys to carry their stuff. And we're in the middle of a supply chain crisis. This is our number one trading partner. And then Omicron is happening where the vaccination isn't really stopping the spread. Maybe arguably it's slowing it, but I think this is pretty rich coming from the prime minister who right now has Omicron, despite the fact he really? he's, yeah, he's COVID positive. But Just, he's so dreamy though. No, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you can't say the vaccines are going to stop it. And yes. explicitly that is the transport minister said in response to this, our plan is to defeat COVID and end the pandemic yeah. while Trudeau is positive, despite the fact he's vaccinated. It's just this isn't a great policy for people who are in trucks isolated alone. Yeah, it seems like a strange place to implement a mandate. You know, as you, we were talking about this earlier this morning about like how people, uh, you know, they're not interacting with a lot of people, these truckers. And what possible public policy is this? Serving? I mean, they still interact with some people when they're dropping off loads. And I think the I idea guess crossing here borders is, is yeah, crossing it, yeah. borders and going to so many different places exposes them to a lot of different areas, a lot of different people. But I agree, they're they're mostly alone most of the day. It doesn't really make sense to make them have a mandate. But this particular incident is interesting to me because there's so many Republican politicians who are showing mm. support for this protest. That's a little odd considering that all of this is going on in the foreign country. Uh, the GoFundMe account, for instance, we were talking a little bit about that uh, after raising around $9 million, GoFundMe terminated the Freedom Convoy account. GoFundMe stated that they released $1 million to the organizers after they provided details on how they would distribute the cash, but then suspended the rest of the money after law enforcement said that uh, previously peaceful demonstrations have become an occupation. Uh, and then originally GoFundMe was going to try to keep the rest of this cash just yeah. for like themselves. Well, I think they were, well, I think they were going to, but they were going to give it to other charities. Yeah, give it to other charities. But yeah. so that's still kind of shady. Yeah, and, uh, no, I agree. Eventually, so they walked they walked back on that, and they're just going to refund it to the people who who uh, who donated. But I mean, we don't have the exact numbers on this, but a lot of those donations arguably probably came from Americans, right wing Americans, who see solidarity with these protesters. But what if Antifa BLM protests in the summer of 2020 were getting foreign money? To fuel their to fuel their organization. What if Jan Six was fueled by Russian money? Right. We would consider that foreign interference in our affairs. How is this not foreign interference in their affairs in their affairs from our part? Yeah, one thing I do want to clarify is that I I think 
there's probably more than right wing people involved in this, just given like I think there are like too. a lot of libertarians, yeah, a lot sure. of people on the left that I know don't like vaccine mandates too. So I do want to do want to acknowledge that, but I do agree that the the wrinkle of you know cross state political or at least activist cash flow, uh, there definitely seems to be a double standard here. I do agree that this is really shady by GoFundMe, and I think Musk pointed out that there, you know, GoFundMe had no problem funding. It was, I think, farmers who were donating food to uh, occupiers inside Seattle during the Floyd protests. So it does seem like there's a yeah. double standard at work here. And a lot of what happened with GoFundMe seems really shady. Uh, and there was something Facebook did, I think, around this too, and, and they didn't provide details where they accused some of the organizers of some kind of QAnon overlap or something, but they didn't really explain it really well. And this is why the transparency is really important to me. These are private companies. They could do whatever the hell they want. But as consumers of it and also as, as a person who worries a little bit about the growing power of these things, uh, you'd want a little bit more context and explanation about the way that they apply these standards. And I think it's interesting. There's kind of an ongoing... Uh, partnership between local law enforcement or governments and these corporations now that are getting caught up in this. This was pressure from the local authorities in Canada that ultimately made GoFundMe change their tune. Um, and then pressure from AGs in America who have people in their states that donated to this campaign saying, we will sue you if you don't refund the money. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's it's really a strange kind of intersection between big tech and government. And I think that it's it's a little concerning to see that these companies, I mean, are rightfully influenced by local governmental authorities. And I think that that kind of boundary needs to be really established because ultimately, no matter what side it is or whether or not you agree with it, the idea of governments kind of working in tandem with these private companies could be really disturbing and could go awry ultimately. Yeah. And one, one sort of, I want to just acknowledge a couple of things that I was trying to figure out in in light of this story, especially for people who are in Canada, probably know a lot more about this. Like, it was hard to get to the bottom of, like, what kind of unlawful behavior is happening at these protests. Like, there is this, you know, the sense that they're honking and keeping people up and getting tickets for that or blocking streets. And then there's the uh, allegations of certain, you know, Nazi symbols and other far-right types of symbol symbolism beyond, like, traditional political discourse and going into potentially hate speech type stuff. And there were allegations and I was trying to work my way through all this. And, and I can't say for sure too much other than the authorities seem to believe that there's there are laws being broken. It seems like there's a wide spectrum of laws that they're implementing, you know, like things that seem really obviously problematic, like honking in the middle of the night, keeping people up versus other things like that are, you know, kind of like nuisance type laws where you're not exactly sure what law they're implementing on paper. Yeah, it's worth noting um, in terms of the arrests, um, one has been for property damage, one for driving while prohibited, and five for mischief. I don't really yeah, know what like that it's means. Yeah, like the laws that you're not um, sure what that is, but, right? Yeah, like, but the, I mean, it definitely seems so far that there's not been any like severe violence or anything um, yeah. that people were concerned about, which we should all be glad about. But um, yeah, it's it seems pretty murky, all the reporting on what's actually going on. It is very murky. And I think it's just all it takes is for one or two idiots to ruin a protest like this. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the inclusion of, of Nazi uh takes one Nazi to ruin a protest. Just takes one yeah. Nazi yeah. to ruin a party. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Canada fought against Nazis. I mean, why would you have a Nazi flag there? A there were Confederate flags there. The, the, yeah, we fought them too, though. I mean, and we got, no, we, we got plenty of them. Well, yeah, which also doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but it really doesn't make any sense for people in Canada to have Confederate flags. I'm almost certain they weren't involved in the American <laughs> Civil War. Right. Um, we need them to to 
to be cool because if there is another one like yeah that's, that's where we're gonna that's have my to first go destination so yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's the american refugees now justin trudeau I just want to take issue with what he said. He said members of parliament unanimously condemn the anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, anti-black racism, homophobia, and transphobia that we've seen on display in Ottawa over the past number of days. Together, let's keep working to make Canada more inclusive. I don't think there was a whole lot of the the homophobia and transphobia there and Islamophobia. I don't think that there's even records of that happening at this protest that we know of. I'm not. Yeah, I couldn't so, find any. I want to be careful to say yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, because it could be possible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure there's some alignment, but it just yeah. seems like Trudeau is just trying to hit the, like, the political bingo card of all the different things that they have to condemn. And you see this a lot with left-wing politicians here. It's something that I, I get really tired of. It's like they say all these things. Well, we got to stick up for all these different communities, unrelated communities, by the way. We got to stick up for this community, this community, this community. And it's, and it's like you're not even talking about the issue at hand you're just Absolutely. you're just telling us all the people you basically want to support you in the next election yeah well th i was looking at some polling on this from abacus data which is a uh, market research firm based in ottawa and 68 percent of respondents said they felt they had quote very little in common with how the protesters in ottawa see things and 57 percent found that the protests were offensive and inappropriate while 43 percent found it respectful and appropriate now that doesn't mean they're illegitimate a lot of protests aren't necessarily uh, like even civil, I'm not comparing this to civil rights, but even the civil rights protests uh, at the time in the 60s w did not have the majority of public support. So like 50 plus percent is not the metric by which we we measure a good or bad protest. But it seems like some of our friends up north have a, a like a, like they at least uh, are taking issue with some of the things that are happening on the ground in Ottawa right now. Definitely. And I mean, it's also kind of against the backdrop of some really strict COVID lockdowns and measures yeah. that Canada's taken, which have more been uh, established by the provinces rather than the the actual like federal government there. But, um, you know, I think all of the talk about the obviously reprehensible uh, minority of protesters who are like displaying flags and stuff. I'm not hearing Trudeau actually talk about the issue at hand that they're expressly there to protest. And um, some of the authorities have said that we're not interested in talking to the truckers or meeting with them. They've expressly said we're not going to consider rapid testing at the border or anything like that. And, and I mean, they have a 14 day quarantine, even if they test positive. Like this is just a weird mandate. It only affects 15% of truckers. And yet Yum. I think that there's so much energy because it's against the backdrop of like pastors were arrested in, in Canada for having church services. They couldn't have it outside. They couldn't have drive-in. Like there were a lot of really severe lockdowns up there that it's easy to forget as an American. Yeah. It's a hard job too. I think it's worth pointing out. Like, yeah. Uh, when I see a poll that says they have very little in common with the protesters or how they see things, I'm like, I'm not surprised that most people don't have a lot in common with truckers because I think truckers are like they take on one of the hardest jobs that we have in society. And just like for in a very different side of the political spectrum, I have a lot of sympathy for medical workers. And I think I emphasize that a lot when I'm when I'm debating people who feel different than me about certain COVID laws. Um, those are really hard jobs. I think driving a truck is really hard and I have sympathy for people who are frustrated. Even if we have different beliefs on vaccines, I think it, 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 I could feel the frustration of having to do that job and then adding this 14 day quarantine. And if you truly believe that the vaccines are problematic, um, even if I disagree with that, you add that stress on top of this job. It's tough. I, I get it. Absolutely. Well, speaking of COVID mandates, blue states have started dropping mask mandates this week. New Jersey, Connecticut, Delaware, and Oregon have all announced they will lift statewide mask mandates. Ricky, this is something you've been following closely. Is this good news? 
I think it's good news that they're being dropped in schools. Um, and so, yeah, the four states that you um, announced, those are all dropping mandates in the coming weeks. And it's important to note that they're now leaving it open to the more local authorities. So if a school still wants to have, if a school board decides that they still want to have a mask mandate, they can. Um, and if a parent still wants to mask uh, their kid, they can. If a teacher still wants to wear a mask, they can. But this is opening up some options. And I think, you know, you can have a different conversation in the different age brackets of K to 12. But I think especially in the younger kids, this is this is clearly a victory, I think, because developmentally in terms of their language, their their social connection, recognizing people, kids who maybe don't speak English at home and need to read people's lips and really develop those skills. I mean, there's there have been a lot of studies that have found especially boys and especially those from lower socioeconomic backgrounds have been struggling with their verbal progression in the pandemic especially. And so I think this is a good step to allow this to be a more localized approach. Yeah, and, and Ricky, you sent me this article from The Atlantic which talked about there's you know, our CDC, the, the national CDC is, has been quoting, the head of the CDC has been quoting this Arizona study, which uh, claims to say that, uh, that schools with mandates were 3.5 times more effective at fighting COVID outbreaks than those without it. And like, that's a, that's a pretty strong statistic if it's true. But as this Atlantic article pointed out, um, and other experts have pointed out, there are major problems with this study. So there's Noah Haber, who's um, an expert and author of systemic reviews of COVID-19 mitigation policies, said that the, the research is, quote, so unreliable that it probably should not have been entered into the public discourse. Uh, and, and he pointed out, and others have pointed out specific problems with the study. Number one was that um, the schools that had mandates had fewer days of school. Uh, than the schools that did have mandates, which alone, you know, you're going to spread it less if you're there less. It also didn't control for vaccine status within schools, like a really important piece of information. Because um, I, Ricky, like I still believe that there, there's probably uh, a chance that vaccine status um, has something to do with spread. I'm not convinced of it with Omicron, but it's relevant at least, like because if we later find out that being vaccinated means that you're less likely to spread it. You'd at least want to control for that in the study. And it's actually a really easy thing to control for. So that study was problematic. There's not a ton of data that say that these school closures were effective. I mean, the, uh, the mass mandates in schools were effective. Uh, and so, yeah, as much as like, I, I believe in masks generally, especially the certain types of masks, this seems like overkill. So the CDC recommends that for ages two and up, everyone should be masked in a universal sense in school settings. And you have some really extreme versions like in New York City, kids are in recess outside wearing masks. They, they're not seeing their friends' faces. They can't interact in LA. Which is absurd, like outside. Uh -huh. like there's no science that None. supports that. In LA, they're requiring vaccination, but they still have to wear non-cloth masks even for sports. Like it's it's really ridiculous. And especially like this is, I'm less concerned about high school students. That's an inconvenience. I mean, I'm still anti-mask mandate. I think it should be a more local uh, situation, but for the under five age group, it's just absolutely ridiculous. The WHO doesn't recommend it for under the age of six. Um, the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control recommends against the use in primary schools. And you you know, you have a situation where flu and pneumonia, heart disease, drowning, guns, motor vehicles, those are all much larger uh, dangers to kids in this demographic. And we're really this like if there's one thing that I could do, one restriction I could drop to make things go back to normal, this would be the first one. Yeah.
Yeah, I'm with you on this. And I'm still a believer in the protective power of masks. So even after the mandates are gone in, in, in New York and in other places, when I go to the supermarket and I go on the subway, I'll still wear my mask. If I'm on an airplane, you, I'll still wear it. How long are you going to keep that up? I don't know. Like, I do think that like there are certain countries where when they had an experience with a pandemic, it just becomes part of the culture. And I could see myself in flu season all the time just wearing it. Because first of all, it's freaking cold in New York and I actually like wearing my mask. Now, I'm like one of those people who was allergic to wearing the mask outside because of what it said about you. Like to me, it means that you're anti-science wearing your mask outside in New York. Um, but I've been wearing it in the winter because it's cold. Yeah. Uh, but it, And that also happens to be the same season where we spread germs more. Yeah. And so being on the subway wearing a mask to me, it's not a problem. But I'm not sitting in school for nine hours. And I'm not going to allow you to bring out the bingo card, but there was a previous job that I had where <laughs> that would make me really sympathetic to some of the people trying to keep these kids in line with the mask. Because like trying to keep a kid sitting up straight paying attention in class is hard enough, nearly impossible in certain contexts. Yeah. Adding another piece of clothing that you need to worry about, yeah. I don't know. I feel for people. Well, by saying class, I think we can figure out what that job was. <laughs> but um, This is my Bill Clinton, I feel your pain episode. <laughs> I'm feeling the pain of the truckers and the nurses and, and the and teachers. The and that's why, everybody, I'm running for oh. nothing. I'm not running for oh, anything. Oh, I would hope not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on, a, on a C3, we can't do that. When when are we going to get rid of the mass mandates here in New York? When wouldn't we think that's going to be? Are you doing any reporting on this for The Post? Um, I'm not at the moment. I haven't covered that personally, but I know that you have a you have a what, 18 month old. I have 18 month old. Could you imagine masking him at the age of two? No, What's your take on that? He would he would take it off and throw it at us and, <laughs> and just yell at us for the next hour for even being bold enough to attempt to put it on him. <laughs> yes, for sure. Uh, our last story. We're going to go inside the metaverse once again with Robbie, who has an update for everyone's favorite and least favorite digital universe. What is going on with China in relation to the metaverse, Robbie? Yeah, shout out to The Economist. Had a really good article this week about uh, Chinese uh, incursions into the metaverse. Now, you might be like, well, metaverse kind of doesn't exist yet. What are they doing? Uh, well, Strap in. Here's what's happening. A lot of people thought that China uh, actually would be averse to the metaverse in many ways. Like they've done things like, you know, restrict the amount of time kids can play in video games. They obviously have like a really strange and restrictive approach to the Internet generally. And you could imagine that the metaverse would be a threat to China because it's it's potentially a, and it's not just one place. Like they're going to be multi-metaverses. Metaverse-sci. I don't know. Versailles. Yeah, there should be a metaverse-sci. I would visit that. Okay. But they, uh, but, uh, You'd think that it would be a threat to China because it would allow people to cross borders, to express themselves the way that they want, uh, you know, change identities. But China, I think, senses that this could be a threat. And like any authoritarian regime, they're looking to sure up their standing in this new area so that they can uh, ward off, I think, any uh, potential threats to their power and maybe even use it as a tool of their power. And so here are just a few examples of developments in China in the metaverse. So in December and January, the cities of Shanghai, Wuhan, and Haifei put the development of the metaverse technology into their five-year plans, which is how they basically make decisions and implement government in China. In November, um, the Xinjiang province held a metaverse industry development symposium where speakers agreed that uh, this, is, this is the area that's home to Alibaba Group, by the way, that they're going to be the forefront of the technology. In October, the Chinese Institute of Contemporary International Relations, which is like an elite think tank within China, affiliated with the government, described uh, in, a, in a paper on the metaverse that the next generation of the internet is going to be the metaverse and that they need laws to deal with, quote, virtual labor, economic crimes, and other areas 
uh, issues in the gray area. So we can imagine what that Orwellian doublespeak means. You can keep going. There's a think tank at the Ministry of Industry and Information, um, which called on Tencent, Baidu, Alibaba, you know, to basically make t- take certain steps in these directions. And it's just, and this is on top of the fact that just within a few months last year, a billion dollars was invested in Chinese metaverse technology companies, and they have the players for this. So they have Tencent, they have Alibaba, they have Baidu, and Tencent is particularly a player to watch because they're, you know, one of, the, if not the biggest uh, video game company, gaming company, they are among the biggest. And when you put together the sort of collection of technology companies that China has, they have a lot of the the sort of reels that could allow them to do well here, like headsets, sort of VR, AR technology, their own versions of cryptocurrency, um, which you could see like China was crack- cracking down on Bitcoin, but they're going to they're gonna try to create their own and own their own reels. So I think this is a huge threat. How much money do I have to have to get into the metaverse? Right now it's expensive. I don't remember. I actually, the last time we did a story, I actually looked because I was like, all right, if it's if it's a certain amount price point, I was like, all right, maybe I'll throw a little money into the metaverse, but it's expensive. I think Ricky, you looked at something I remember you saying. Yeah, I feel like, I don't know, I'm going to quote it wrong, but I think it was like $8,000 for the cheapest real estate or something like that. Wow. It was in the thousands. and well, it's cheaper than New York. Still, yeah. I don't know. But this whole thing, thing feels really analogous to me of like the WeChat thing and how they, they ban specific technological platforms and make their own kind of um, like uh, government authenticated versions. Right. And I feel like this, you know, it's easy to have this new terrain of the metaverse and think it's going to be really utopian. But I think this is probably a pretty good example of how it could go really awry and we should tread lightly into that territory if you ask yeah. me. It's almost like a certain kind of uh, digital space race. And there's this the saying yeah. in China, which is like overtaking on the curve, which means beating the West on, on a key technology before the West gets there. They did this on 5G. They'll do it on 6G, which a lot of people think is gonna oh, be- 6G. Yeah, crazy. no, there's gonna be a 6G. Uh, but they're actually pretty good in certain ways. They're, they're definitely doing this in genetics, um, which is some really scary tea leaves on that front. Uh, and so they're looking to overtake the U.S. Uh, in this technology. And it's tricky because if they succeed in developing a robust version of their metaverse, which I think is inevitable uh, that they're going to create their own version of it, it might just mirror what we have now, you know, where there's a Chinese version of it and then there's an American version of it and they don't necessarily interact, which is kind of a bummer because I think I don't think that the metaverse is necessarily going to be good or bad yet. And it might be complicated like like the Internet is today. But there's a world where the internet can be freeing to people. Like if you have a disability, the metaverse can help you express your way. If you if you want to express yourself as an able-bodied person, which not not everybody with a disability necessarily wants to, but if you wanted to, you could. Or if you if you identified differently than um, what you've been genetically given, you can. Uh, or like the way you express, you can do that. You, if, you, if you're if you in Bangladesh growing up in poverty, but you want to interact with Americans, but you can't leave your country or afford to get on a plane, then you can interact with Americans or Canadians, like, or whatever. Or if you're like in, you know, a family that's separated in India, Pakistan, or in, uh, in the Palestinian territories in Jordan, you can interact with people uh, in a more tangible, tactile way than you otherwise could. There's so much potential for good here. And that's why I wanted to bring the story in it because I don't see the media covering this other than like a mocking of Zuckerberg, which I'm for it. Let's mock Zuckerberg as much as we want. But I think because he was one of the first people to really get out in front of um, the metaverse and called his company Meta, I think people think of the metaverse as only Facebook, but it's Mm -hmm. not. There are a ton of different technology companies in this. The the book is just starting to get written. If, if If we're looking at this book now, we're on page one of the metaverse. And so I want us to keep coming back to this because I think this has the potential to be 
one of the most, if not the most significant technology story of the next few decades, more important, I think, in many ways than cryptocurrency. And I actually think they overlap because you can imagine people transacting in cryptocurrency in the metaverse because, you know, if we're doing this cross-border tactile sort of exchange of goods and ideas, et cetera, one way to get around all the complicated uh, laws around, you know, the flow of currency is potentially to, to transact in the currency of that whatever metaverse universe you're in and you can imagine that being cryptocurrency some interesting stuff we'll have to keep a keep an eye out on it so we got a couple of follow-ups we want to address from uh, a few of our previous episodes there's been some changes to some stories that we've talked about one of them is changes to this story about uh, brian flores the the former coach of the miami dolphins what updates do we have there yeah and i actually should have thought of this when we did this story last week but uh, i've done some I've, I've seen some articles that were speculating that flores uh the former coach of the Miami Dolphins who launched this lawsuit against the NFL. We did a story on it. What I didn't mention in the story was the possibility of an arbitration clause in his contract. And people have speculated and they've looked at other coaches' contracts. At least as of today, I haven't seen confirmation that there is an arbitration clause in his contract with the Dolphins, but there has to be. And I should have thought of this. Now, what is the... And, and people have shown other coaches' contracts to say, hey, there are these arbitration clauses. And why is this significant? Because, you know, you do this when you sign these random waivers with technology or you go into the gym or whatever. A lot of times you sign away your right to bring a lawsuit in traditional court when you interact with a big company. And a lot of people are critical of these clauses. I certainly am. And what happens is you go to an arbitrator who's supposed to be neutral, but these are not neutral parties most of the time. They're companies that that want to keep business with these companies. And so the NFL, I think, probably will pick the arbitrator. That happens often. And obviously those arbitration companies are not going to piss off the NFL. So it's basically a way to, for, for lawsuits to go to die. Oh, wow. But where I sit right now, I'm not sure if that arbitration clause would apply to all the other claims about other teams because he might the, – the, the contract, I think, would only govern, I think – his what relationship with the, the Dolphins. Dolphins. Yeah, yeah, but not the Broncos and all these the other Giants people. and everybody else. Yeah. There's also a federal agency that you can bring these types of claims to that um, is a commission that can investigate the claims. And it, it the arbitration clause has nothing to do with that. So uh, there's a world where whether you know Flores gets money or not or some of these corrective measures happen or not, the, the NFL is still like squarely within the sort of sites of some sort of discovery process, some kind of prolonged process. And so they may decide to settle this, even if there's an arbitration clause at issue. Yeah. Does throw a small different uh, wrench in that case, though. Uh, another thing we wanted to look at was we did this study on lockdowns. We talked about this study on lockdowns. We didn't actually conduct it, but we talked about this study. <laughs> we, on, we're busy around here. Yeah, we're, we're yeah. yeah. Uh, we talked about this study on lockdowns last week. I know, Ricky, you had a lot of opinions about this particular piece, and there has been a couple of updates on that. Yeah, so um, essentially the way that we left it was kind of debunking some of the claims that there was no rationale behind what studies were picked. Um, and we left it kind of in the place of we'd like to see what the experts have to say. And um, a lot of experts have weighed in. There's a lot of controversy surrounding the study. Um, specifically, I think the biggest issue is what they consider a lockdown. And theoretically, under their definition, any form of sort of mitigation policy could be counted. So even if you just had a mask mandate or something. Um, and so there is a lot of back and forth within the medical kind of epidemiological community. Um, and obviously, this isn't something that I can speak to as a non-expert, but I definitely encourage anyone that's interested in it to dive into some of the Twitter threads and different ar articles and arguments that are floating around in the web about whether this study is valid. And I'll be interested to hear if the original authors do respond to these criticisms ultimately. 
Sounds good. Well, we thank you for listening and watching. Make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube. And if you're listening to our podcast, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We will see you guys next time.